First John chapter number 4, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 7. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Read with me a few verses in chapter 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time You've given us. Lord, I pray tonight that You'd speak to each and every heart, that which would bring about the perfect will of God, that which would glorify Jesus Christ. Lord, we have need of a touch from on high tonight. We have need of the moving and wooing of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We are helpless without You, Lord. And you empower us and work through us through the movement and through the working of the Holy Spirit. So we surrender and submit ourselves to his leading tonight and just ask that you do a mighty work in our midst. I pray tonight, Father, that if there's any amongst us lost and undone, they'd see their need of Calvary. Lord, any that have strayed from a close and abiding walk with you, that you'd draw them back close to yourself, but that in all things Jesus might be magnified. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've read these passages of Scripture in 1 John chapter number 4, I believe it behooves us to try to say a word about what John is writing about. Now, some of you have been with us through this whole study. You know what I'm about to say. Others haven't been able to be. But John is writing this letter to a little group of believers that have been persecuted by a group that are known as Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism is still prevalent today, though it's not called Gnosticism. But as a movement, it was very prevalent in the first century. Gnostics believed that they had a special revelation from God, an extra-scriptural revelation 
from God. Now, that still exists in this day that we live in. Sometimes you'll see a preacher on television. He'll be preaching, and then all of a sudden, I mean, he'll twitch like he swallowed a bee, you know, and, and, and he'll say, somebody out there is, is getting ready to find out they're having a baby. Amen. And, and that's, you know, that's real sharp. Amen. Uh, except he might, you know, there might be 30,000, 40,000, 100,000 people watching it. You do the math. Amen. There's babies being born. It don't take a rocket scientist to play that game. But what he's claiming is that he got an advanced revelation from God. So this teaching is still prevalent today. Uh, when we think of the word Gnostic, we're reminded of the word agnostic. And uh, any word, it's typical in the English language, uh, any adjective or any uh, proper noun descriptive of something that you might use, if you put A in front of it, you negate it. Uh, there are theists. We are theists. We believe that, that God is real, that He exists. And then there's an atheist who does not believe God exists. Uh, we, I hope, are moral people, at least uh, in some sense of the word. Amen. I know we're Baptists, but, but I hope we're moral in some sense of the word. Uh, but an amoral person is someone that has no morality. Well, in the very same way, an agnostic is someone that claims to have no knowledge of whether there is a God or not. Uh, a Gnostic is someone that claims to have an advanced revelation. Uh, there were, this was a broad sect of uh, people that believed varying things. And of this group, there was a group that was known as Docetism. And uh, it was this group that was persecuting this little church. Uh, Docetism had three chief heresies that they uh, uh, propagated amongst churches in that time. One of those heresies was that everything that is spiritual is good and everything that is material is evil. Now you say, well, that sounds pretty good. And it does at first sound pretty good. But here's the problem. Uh, if you believe that, then you have to believe that Lucifer, because he is a spiritual being, is good. And you have to believe that the incarnation could not have taken place because God was manifest in the flesh. So you see, there's a problem with this bad theology that they had. Why did they believe this? Well, they believed this because they believed they had attained a moral superiority. In other words, they claimed that they sinned just like anybody else, but they were so enlightened. Boy, don't you love that word enlightened? That's a, that's a, that's a popular term in this day that we live in. Everybody's enlightened, but the world just keeps getting darker. Amen. Uh, but you know, they claimed they were so enlightened that when they sinned, they had severed the connection between body and spirit. And that when their body sinned, it didn't affect their spirit. They committed evil, they sinned, but to them it was not sin. Have you ever wondered why it was that John says in the first chapter of this book, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Have you ever wondered why John said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's because there was a group in that time and in this time today that were claiming they were so enlightened that the traditional uh, definitions and delineations and boundaries uh, concerning sin did not apply to them. The only way they could do this was by severing the tie between the body and spirit. And so they did this uh, by proposing that everything spiritual was inherently good and everything physical or tangible or material or temporal, however you'd like to describe it, is inherently bad. Now, here's where they come into a third heresy. Here's a problem. What do you do with the incarnation? The Bible says in John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Bible says God was manifest 
in the flesh. Here's how they tried to reconcile it. You know, a lot of times the more hoops someone has to jump through to explain what they mean, the further they were off when they started jumping. Amen. And uh, so they claimed uh, that this was so because Jesus was a human, purely human and finite, and that Christ was a spirit, a divine spirit, that descended upon him at the point of his baptism and departed before the crucifixion. Now, friend, that is pure heresy. The Bible teaches that in the beginning was the Word. Uh, The Bible teaches that He is the eternal Son of God. He did not become the Son when He was incarnated. He's always been the Son. He said, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world was. So He has always existed. And it's these three heresies that John is addressing throughout this entire little book. And we have uh, made a lot of journeys. We're in week number nine, so we've looked at a lot of passages. But one of the things that John begins to deal with tonight, and he's dealt with the idea of godly love or love of the brethren several times already in the book of 1 John, but he really begins to lay out some truths concerning God's love towards us, our love towards Him, and our love towards others. Can I say to you tonight that there is a direct correlation between His love toward us, our love towards Him, and our love towards others. That's made abundantly clear in this passage that we've read. He's spoken about uh, Antichrist. He's spoken about the spirit of error. Uh, but John, it, doesn't, it is not lost on him the importance in a New Testament church for the brethren to love one another. Uh, Now, let me say this tonight, that part of what John was dealing with in his day and that we deal with in the day that we live in is a complete redefining of words. We do not live in a day of words and ideas any longer, friend. We live in a day of rhetoric. We live in a day of uh, platitudes. We live in a day of vain and tingling words that do not lead to truth and edify, but have been warped and taken and abused for the world's purposes. Let me give you an example. And, I, and I'm not going to dwell on this because we're going to get to the Word of God and it's much more profitable uh, than anything that I might say. But let me say that uh, uh, one of the words that has been hijacked in this day that we live in is the word gay. There was a time when the word gay meant to be jovial, to be happy, to be carefree. And the sodomites have taken that word and tried to redefine it to identify their movement with it. Now, when you hear the word gay, and, I, and I'm, uh, you know, me, I was talking to someone earlier today about generations. I, I don't know what generation I'm part of. I, I guess I'm part of Generation X, or I'm a millennial, or I, maybe I'm an extra, extra large. I don't know. But uh, I'll be honest with you. In my time growing up, I never heard in common usage the word gay used referring to happiness or carefreeness. I never heard that. It was always identified with the sin of sodomy. There's a reason that the devil does this. He's always done this. What was the first thing he said? He said, Yea, hath God said? It's to cast doubt upon the plain word of God. That's always been his design. And so I think it's important in this passage tonight that we understand that John is going to use the actions of God to define what true and real and biblical love is. 
Love is another word that's been hijacked today. Love is uh, used today to mean things like passion, things like lust. For a lot of people, drama, amen. Things like attention, uh, things like self-centeredness. And so love is used to uh, be defined uh, or to define all of those things today. But understand that we're only going to have a biblical worldview when we begin to allow the Word of God to dictate what our worldview is. When we begin to understand the Word of God in its context and allow it... Listen, friend, I mean, I'm proud to be a Baptist. I'm as Baptist as Baptist gets. But at the very heart of things, I'm a Biblicist. If, uh, if every single quote-unquote Baptist in the world went left, threw away the Bible, uh, quit adhering to orthodox theology, I'd still go with the Word of God by God's grace. I seek to be a Biblicist. We all as Christians ought to seek to be Biblicists. And so John goes about this by using uh, four, let me use the word, four trilogies of thought. We have read from verse 7 down to verse number 3 in the next chapter. And you're going to find four groupings of three things in these passages. I'm going to do my best to try to explain this. There's much I'm sure that I won't be able to deal with. But I want you to look with me at verses 7 through 10 again. Read it with me. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to give you three words tonight, and we're going to repeat them a lot in the message. The first is the word command. For each of these trilogies, we're given a command in the Word of God. Can I say that love is an active thing? The Bible says to love uh, not in word only, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is an active thing. Now, that's not to say that there aren't times when we have feelings of love towards someone and we don't have the capacity to do anything about it. But John is very clear that you can say you love someone, but if you shut up your bowels of compassion, notice he did not say your bowels of charity or your bowels of giving, but your bowels of compassion. You may not have the money, you may not have the health, you may not have the wherewithal to help somebody, but you can still hurt with them, you can still weep when they weep, you can still pray for them, you can still love them. He said, uh, how dwelleth the love of God in a man that does that? So a command is the first thing that's given. The second is a consideration to every one of these trilogies. A truth about God that is vital for us to understand uh, about our relationship of love towards other brethren. And the final thing is a characterization. Something that is uh, characteristic of God's love that defines what love is for us. What's the first command that's given? Look at verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, let me say that John is going to deal with the notion of expressing the love of God towards a lost and dying world. But I believe in the immediate context of what John is dealing with. And I'm not saying we shouldn't love sinners. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to reach them. We should. But I believe what John is talking about here is the love that we have one toward another. Love is a body. Love is a church. And can I say that uh, 90% of the problems in most churches could be done away with if we would try to love one another more and do away with our egos and our pride. 
we'd think of one another first, if we'd care for one another first, if we would prefer one another above ourselves, as the book of Ephesians commands us to do, it is a basic command of God to love one another. Let me say to you tonight that if you harbor hatred towards uh, anyone, uh, then you are out of the will of God, because it's the will of God that we love one another. Now, some of you say, preacher, you don't know what they did to me. Oh, no, I don't know what they've done to you, friend, but I know what we did to God, and I know that God loved us anyway. The Bible says that we're to forgive one another, uh, that even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. We have no excuse, friend. After Calvary, we have no excuse for not forgiving and loving one another. I understand the people that continually do you harm. You may have to distance yourself. You may have to put barriers or boundaries. I'm not uh, proposing that we become doormats for each other. Uh, but there is a vast difference between marking those which cause division, a vast difference between uh, protecting your family and protecting uh, your life from allowing someone to take advantage and abuse it. There's a far cry from that and bitterness. We can do things in the right way without being bitter about it. And we need to understand, first off, this simple command, and it summarizes everything John's about to say. Let us love one another. Look what he says immediately after this. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. There we have a consideration. Something that God gives us that we need to take a moment and ponder. How can we say that we are expressing God both to each other and to a lost and dying world and yet claiming to do it without love when the Word of God says plainly that God is love? Understand that John is not forming some kind of uh, new deistic thought here. He is not trying to uh, claim some type of new theology. He is not trying uh, to take God and make God uh, uh, love. He's trying to take love and make love about God. He's not saying God's not real or that God is embodied in the ideal of love, but he's saying that at God's very essence is the attribute of love. There are differences between uh, God's essence and God's expression or God's characteristics. There's some things that God does because of who he is, but then there's some things about God that just define who he is. God is righteous. That's part of his essence. God is holy. That's part of his essence. You'll never do anything to disrupt the holiness of God. God's holiness was so important that rather than allow sin to go unpunished and his holiness to be trampled upon, he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for your sins and my sins, that he might, as the book of Romans says in chapter number three, be both just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus Christ. It's part of his essence. And just as God's holiness is part of his essence, his love is part of his essence. It is is a quality of God to express love. Let's learn some things about this love. Listen to how it's characterized. Look at verse number 9 with me. In this was manifested. You know that word manifest is important there? You know why it's important? Because it tells me that God didn't start loving me on Calvary. He always loved me. 
But He manifested that love through Calvary. Or as the book of Romans chapter 5 says, He commendeth His love towards us. He committed it towards us. He expressed it towards us. I've used the example before of a military commendation. I hope that the military, before it ever pins a medal on a war hero, I hope it already appreciates them. But that's something it's doing to express both to them and to the entire world those feelings of admiration and respect and affection that they already have. That commendation is placed upon them uh, so that they might partake in uh, the joy of what they've done, but so that they might also uh, bear the joy of what they've done to the rest of the world. Calvary, what was that? That was God pinning that medal of grace on you and me. He loved us before Calvary. He loved us from the foundation of the world. But He expressed that love. He manifested it through Calvary. Notice what it says. And this was manifested the love of God towards us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Can I say to you tonight that love is an expecting thing? Or let me use a military term. We've been talking about the military. The word preemptive. Love is a proactive and preemptive thing. God didn't wait around for us to start loving Him before He started loving us. God loved us in our lost condition. Can I say to you that if you're waiting around for everybody around you to earn your love, you're going to be waiting a long time. But you might be amazed if you just show some compassion and love towards other folks the difference that it'd make in their life. We all get frustrated with folks, and if you don't believe that, if you won't say that, you're just a liar. I mean, we all get frustrated with folks. I don't care who you are, uh, everybody in this room, we get frustrated with people. And it's easy to get put out with folks, amen? If they'd just do it like we did it, everything would be all right. The only problem is if they did it like we did it, they wouldn't have their problems, but they'd have our problems, amen? It's easy to look at everybody else and not look at ourselves. And if you're waiting around for everybody to earn your forgiveness and earn your love, you're going to be waiting a long time, and you're going to spend a long time out of the will of God in bitterness waiting for everybody around you to earn that love. That love that you didn't even earn. That love that you didn't even deserve. Love is a preemptive thing. I believe that as believers, one of the greatest effectiveness we can have, and John's going to talk about this in a moment, but is to seek out people that are in need of Christ, whether in the sense of salvation, they've never been born again, or people that have been born again, but they're not living for the Lord, and just try to show love towards them. Now, listen, I'm for confrontational soul winning. I believe we need to get to the heart of the matter. I believe we need to talk to people about their soul situation. I am very aware of that. I endorse every bit of it. But there's a lot of times when people just don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's things that loving one another will do that all the words and all the sermons and all of the services and all the songs and all the shouting won't do. That Nothing can replace the love that we ought to have towards each other. And it's a preemptive thing. We better get this through our mind. And let me say to you tonight, I almost there's a part of me that feels silly even preaching this way because I, I, we've got a loving church. I really believe that with my whole heart. We've got a church that loves one another, uh, that tries to take care of one another and be good to one another. But listen to me, there's always room for improvement. And I don't care who we are, I promise you there's people that we could be showing the love of God towards that we're not. Notice what it says in verse uh, number 10 very carefully. Here in his love... Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, let me tell you something tonight. And, and I didn't even write this down. I didn't even make a note of it, but it needs to be said. Love is a sacrificial thing. 
at its very nature, love does without that others might have. Now, I'm not proposing you give every uh, penny that you have away. I promise you, if you did it in the will of God, God makes sure you had more pennies than you had opportunities to give away. But I'm not saying we all go out and live the pauper's life and we all veil ourselves in, in, you know, brown robes and live in a monastery. I'm not, not proposing that tonight. But let me say that we're not loving the way God loved until it's an inconvenience. Till it costs us something. I don't just mean financially. I mean sometimes our emotions, our feelings. Oh, this is going to hurt, but sometimes our pride. We're not loving like God loves until... What does the cross tell us about God's love? It tells us that He was willing to bankrupt heaven, humiliate His Son, sever... And I'm careful to use these words because I'm speaking about something so mysterious that I can't even describe or explain it. I just know that it's true. In some sense, severed the fellowship that he had with his son. You say, oh, preacher, I don't believe that. Well, all through the gospel, Christ always called him Father. But there on the darkness, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm not saying he ceased to be God. I'm not saying he ceased to be the Son. But I'm saying something about that fellowship was disrupted, that you and I might have eternal fellowship with him. That's how God expressed his love towards us. And yet our attitude towards love, more often than not, is, well, if it's going to put me out, if it's going to, talk, if it's going to take time, take money, if I'm going to have to deal with somebody, if I'm going to have to do this, do that, then I'm not interested. That's not the love of God. That's not the love that He showed us. Look at the next trilogy. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute. Preacher, the Lord just told us to do that. Well, I believe he repeats it for two reasons. One, because he he adds something to it when he says it this second time. But two, because I believe it's so foundational to the health and fellowship and effectiveness of a New Testament church that I believe God thought it important. Just as several times through the Bible, God would look at a man and call his name twice. He'd say, Moses, Moses, or Abraham, Abraham. Uh, he was trying to add importance uh, and trying to add emphasis. And all through the Gospels, Christ said over and over again, verily, verily, he was trying to add emphasis. I think, in a sense, this is God taking the topic of love and saying, verily, verily, he's trying to say, listen up, this is an important thing. But understand, too, that this gives us the premise and the foundation of our love. Beloved, if God... Notice this little word. It's very important. How many of you believe that everything in that King James Bible is there on purpose? It says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Again, this draws the spotlight on Calvary and asks this simple question. Why is it that God could do so much for us? And we do so little for one another. Why is it that God could do so much for us and we can't be inconvenienced? We can't do without. We can't have uh, our schedules interrupted, our, our pride bruised, our, our wallets emptied a little. Why is it that God could do so much for us and yet we could say, Lord, you've asked too much of me? I think that little word, so, is very important because it gives us a context to this truth that the reason we love one another is because of Calvary. I, I mean, understand, I, and I love this. I mean, we're, here we are, all of us in this room together. <laughs> and what is drawing us to each other? 
I love everybody in this room, but I, I'm going to be honest with you, and I don't mean this in an ugly way, uh, but, you know, there's some folks that if I was talking to them, if we weren't talking about the Lord, after about five minutes, we'd run out of stuff to talk about. Amen? I mean, that's why it's tough sometimes to talk to a lost man uh, about stuff other than the Lord. I mean, I, we might talk a little bit about fishing or a little bit about UT football when there's something to talk about, amen. Uh, but after that, I, I mean, we got to talk about the Lord. I, I can't talk about drinking with him. I can't talk about drugs with him. I, I can't talk about adultery with him. I, I, I don't, God saved me from those things. And, and I don't identify with those things. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. But he did change my life. What's drawn us all here together? The love of God is what's drawn us here together. Calvary is what's drawn us here together. And so we have this command to love one another. But notice this consideration, verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. Why did John say this? No man hath seen God at any time. I think there's two reasons. One of the reasons, I believe, is because I am firmly convinced that some of the revelations that these Gnostics were claiming that God had given them dealt with them seeing God. They were claiming to have this advanced knowledge of God. And John says, no, 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 no. As concerns the Godhead, the triune, the thrice holy, almighty God, no man has laid eyes on Him. Now, Jesus is God. I, we understand. We talk about that in the Bible study. I, I'm a Trinitarian, amen. I, I believe that God is one God in three persons, not in three parts, not in three manifestations. I believe He's one God in three persons. I believe each one of those is just as much God as the others. I believe they are the Godhead. You say, preacher, explain that. I can't explain something uh, that's otherworldly. I can't explain something that has no natural replication of it. There's no way for me to completely, exhaustively explain the Trinity except to say that John goes on in chapter 5 to say there's three that bear record in heaven. Uh, I'm not saying that Jesus was not God. He was God. The Holy Spirit is God. Of course, the Bible also teaches that no man has seen the Holy Spirit. Uh, some folks would say, well, you know, that they saw uh, Him when He descended from heaven at the baptism of Christ in the likeness of a dove, that is. So John's saying, no, no man hath seen God at any time. But I think there's a secondary reason he's saying this. Look at the whole context. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We see this same truth in verse 17, summarized by this little phrase, because as he is, so are we in this world. What is John saying here? What's the consideration the consideration he wants us to ponder is this. If the world's going to see God, they're only going to see him through us. It's the only way. I, you know, listen, I, I, I wouldn't, nobody is going to drag Jesus off his throne and back to this earth. He's coming back when the Father tells him to come back, but nobody's going to drag him back. Nobody's going to put him back in Galilee. Nobody is going to replicate the incarnation. Christ has ascended up into heaven. He's seated at the right hand uh, of the Father. Uh, but understand that as far as his earthly manifestation, this world that we live in, that's done until he returns in power and in glory in this day of grace that we live in. The only way that people can know something of God is through believers, through the Word of God and through believers. So we need to understand that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are the representatives of Him. I wonder, boy, this... I wonder, I wonder 
If every Christian was a Christian like we're a Christian, I wonder what kind of shape this world would be in. If everybody witnessed the way we witnessed, what kind of shape would this... How quickly would the light of evangelism be snuffed out in this world if everybody witnessed the way that you and I witness? Now, that's, that's not easy. I understand that. But we need to grasp hold of this truth that we are, uh, that Christ is the light of the world. But he said this, he said, uh, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. What's he saying? He's saying two things. One, he's saying, I'm departing from this world and you're going to be the light as a city set on a hill. But he's saying, too, that that light can be manifest to a lost and dying world in the darkness of this world through the love that we show towards one another. What did Christ say? He said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love of one another. The fact is, I think there'd be a lot more credibility given to Bible Christianity if Christians would learn to love each other more. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm not talking about uh, uh, hooking up and yoking up uh, with heresy. But I'm just talking about, I'm not talking about getting this big name preacher to sit down at a table with that big name preacher. I'm talking about getting local churches just like Walridge Baptist Church, uh, even within that church, to love one another, to not bicker, to not nitpick, uh, to not be critical one of another, but to love one another. That makes an impact makes a difference. I firmly believe we'll be more effective the more we love one another. Notice this characterization given in verse number 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. Now, as I studied this, I'll confess to you that at first I thought the next few verses were parenthetical. And what I mean by that is I thought that they inserted a, a thought that was maybe related, uh, but not necessarily organic. But as I studied this, I began to understand that there's a lot meant by that little phrase where it says in verse, uh, verse number 13, because he hath given us of his spirit. It's interesting that it does not say because he hath given us his spirit. Now, he has given us his spirit, hasn't he? The Bible says that uh, Christ made this statement. He said, I go away, but another comforter will come. said, he will uh, uh, abide within you. said, he'll never depart from you. The Bible teaches plainly the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for each and every born-again child of God. I'm not denying that. But it does not say he's given us uh, his spirit. It says he's given us of his spirit. And there's a verse that immediately popped into my mind in the book of Romans where the Bible says, because... Uh, the love of God hath been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. You see, the characterization is this, that love is an expressive thing. God expressed that love towards us and indwelt us with the Holy Spirit. Why? That we might express that love towards others. Shed abroad in our hearts. Uh, you say, preacher, why is it shed abroad? Uh, because, you know, some of us, uh, we got them dark corners of our heart where we like to hide things. God had to spread it good and wide to get every area of it. But understand, listen to me, there's some that will say, preacher, I cannot forgive. Preacher, I cannot move past. What they did was too 
big. Understand that the love of God, if you're a believer, has been shed abroad in your heart. You have the capacity to forgive. You have the capacity to show love towards each other. This isn't a matter, there's no cop-out, there's no excuses. Uh, We may choose not to do it, but if we don't do it, it's because we've chosen, not because we can't. Because God's expressed this love towards us, and we have the capacity through the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why a lot of people can't forgive, because they're trying to forgive in the flesh, and the flesh... The flesh doesn't want to forgive. The flesh wants to fight. The flesh wants to mark it down. The flesh wants to carve it in granite and in marble. The flesh wants to say, I will not move on. The flesh wants to say, I will make my stand here. The flesh wants to say, let's talk about it again. Let's bring it up again. But it's the Spirit of God that allows us to forgive and to move on. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are what? Spiritual. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, uh, lest thou also be tempted. The carnal man, the natural man, the fleshly man, he can't forgive. Because the carnal man can't uh, discern spiritual things. The carnal man, listen, the carnal man doesn't respond to Calvary, so he knows nothing of the love of God. It's the new man that communicates with Calvary. It's the new man that communicates through the Spirit of God. It's the new man that has the capacity to forgive. So the only way we can forgive is by crucifying that old man and allowing our inner man to be renewed day by day, as the Word of God says. We have a characterization given. Notice verse 16, another commandment is given to us. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Dwelling in love. That tells me this, that our attitude of love towards one another ought to be a perpetual attitude. God's commanding us not just to love for a moment, not just to love while people are watching, not just to love uh, while it's an issue, not just to love while there's something to resolve, but to have a perpetual attitude of love one towards another. Uh, you know, some of you, some of you remember when you was raising kids, and especially if you raised sons, if you raised boys that was anywhere close, you remember what it was like living in that house uh, with all them, you know, wild Indians running around. Amen. Uh, you remember what it was like in that environment where they'd scuffle and they'd fight and they'd argue and they'd hit each other over the head with rocks, you know, amen. And, and uh, I laugh because I hit Brother Kerry over the head with a rock one time. That's why he's the way he is, amen. But uh, they'd fight and they'd fuss and they'd argue. And then you'd get them together and you'd say, all right, boys, you're going to shake hands, you're going to make up. And sure enough, as quick as they fought, they'd make up, they'd hug necks, and it wasn't fake, it was genuine, it was real, and off they went playing one with another. And then all of a sudden you heard it. Boom, 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 boom. That's my toy. I didn't say that. You touched me. Mom, he spit on me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they knew how to love, but they didn't know how to perpetually love. That's a sign of immaturity. You meet people that have always got a problem, it's because they're immature. You meet people that are always fussing and feuding and fighting and always got to have something going on. It's because they're immature. That's a sign of immaturity. Notice what John goes on to say. Look at this consideration in verse number 17 and 18. Herein is our love made what? Perfect. Now, we know that that word in the, in the Word of God, that doesn't just, uh, at times it does carry the connotation of spotlessness or perfection as we know it today, but we know that many times it carries the idea of maturity. And I believe that's what's being said here. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness 
in the day of judgment. Can I say that one of the considerations we ought to have is this, the soon coming judgment seat of Christ, that we as believers are going to have to appear before and give an account for the things that we've done. Let me ask you something. How is that, how is that blood feud that you've had with that brother or sister in Christ, how's that going to look next to the judgment seat of Christ? Will it be worth it? Will it seem big as you look in the eyes of the one that died on Calvary? As you're met face to face with the nail-scarred hands that bore your sins and my sins, how big is that little dispute going to look? I think this is an important consideration. He goes on in verse 18 to say there's no fear in love, but perfect love, mature love, it casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, let me say this tonight, and I hope my exegesis is, uh, is, is working uh, well. Some of you don't know what that means. You thought, well, just take a pill. Amen. But uh, I, I hope my explanation of this is, is accurate. But I've often had people say before, I don't understand that verse because shouldn't we fear God? Listen tonight, I don't think that verse is talking about our love and fear towards God. I think that's talking about our love and fear towards one another. Uh, that's the whole context, isn't it? Loving one another. And I think what he's saying is this. There is no fear in love one to another. You know, there's a lot of folks that the only reason they do anything is because they're afraid of the repercussions of each other. I, I had to make up my mind when I first started pastoring that I wasn't going to try to browbeat people, to make people feel guilty. I, I don't listen. I mean, I understand there's times you come into the house of God and you're doing it out of duty and obligation. Your flesh sees to it that there's times you have to be doing it for that, for that reason. I'm aware of that. But listen, I, I don't want people just going to, uh, coming into the house of God with this attitude of, well, I guess I better go. I'll get beat over the head if I don't. Perfect love casteth out fear. You've got to come into the house of God, not because you're afraid somebody's going to gossip about you, not because you're afraid somebody's going to say something about you, but because you love God. You ought to be good to one another, not because you're afraid of your reputation, but because you love one another. You ought to be good to each other, not because you're afraid. What's he been talking about? He said the judgment. But he says perfect love casteth out fear. Fear is a powerful thing. And fear, listen, there is godly fear. The Bible says about Noah that he was moved with fear in building the ark. I, I'm not opposed. I, I understand God does use fears. When I got saved, I was scared of going to hell. Amen. And it did the job. So I'm not saying. But let me say that we ought to mature to the place where we love one another, not because we're afraid God's going to bop us over the head with a hammer, but because we love Him and we love each other. We ought to get to the place where, what does it say? Fear hath torment. I've seen people that... They loved each other so much it just hurt. Amen? <laughs> you could tell. I mean, they hated the idea of having to put up with one another. That's not the love of God. That's not the love of Calvary. That's not biblical love. Notice finally, here, not finally, don't get excited, but look at verse number 19. Notice this characterization. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So that tells me what? What's the command uh, that is given uh, down? Well, we'll look at this real quick. Look at verse number 19 again. We love him because he first loved us. The characterization of love is that love is an exclusive thing. Not exclusive in the sense of who we love, but exclusive in this sense uh, that the whole reason that we love one another is because of God's love towards us. The love of God was birthed in our hearts through Calvary. We love him because the love He showed towards us. 
By the same token, we love each other for that reason. That is the chief and main reason that we love each other. Notice what he says. I I like this, and I want to move on. Look at verse number 20. He says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment, we have another command, have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Now, I'm going to give you a few quick thoughts and I'm going to close. But let me say that love is an extensive thing. Your relationship with God will directly affect how you love one another. He's saying this, how can we say that we love God and we've not seen Him? When we can't even love our brother that's beside us and we have seen them. In other words... If we have this love of God whom we have not seen, what does the book of Second Peter say? Whom having not seen, ye love, and rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. The fact is that we as believers, we claim to love God. But let me say that you can claim that all day long, but if you don't love one another, it don't mean anything to God or anything to anyone else. Love's an extensive thing. Our relationship with God affects our love towards each other. The command is given in verse 21 that we love God and love our brother. Look at the consideration, verse number 1 of chapter 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now here's the exchange that's taking place. And part of the reason John's saying this is because these people claim, these Gnostics claim to love God the Father, uh, but they claim Jesus was a human. John's saying that doesn't G and Hall. Uh, if you love him that begat, you'll love him that's begotten of him. But I think there's a dynamic that we need to consider here, and that is this, that you and I, we've been begotten of God as well, in a sense. We've been born again. I understand he's the only begotten son, but the Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. So if we're going to love God... We're going to also love God's sons, God's daughters. That's the consideration. You can't love him that begat without loving him that's begotten. You can't love the father without loving the children. How is it? Boy, any parent will tell you, and I've learned this more as I've become a parent. I I, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the best ways that you can show love towards me is love my child. Isn't that true? You ever had a friend that you loved dearly? and they were hateful to or mistreated your child in some way, that hurts your friendship, hurts your relationship with them. It it, it cuts you to the quick. By the same token, you've probably had people that the way they endeared themselves to you is by the goodness that they showed towards your children. There's a direct correlation here. That's the consideration. Notice these next verses and we'll close. Finally, the characterization. Verse number 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. You know how I know that a lot of this talk in modern Christianity about love is nothing but but hollowness, vainness, just a straw man? You know how I know that? Because much of that movement is characterized by a lack of holiness, separation, and love for God. You can't love your brother without loving God. You can't have the right relationship with other Christians without having the right relationship with God. This is a whole other sermon, but you also can't have the right relationship with God without attempting in some way doing your part to have the right relationship with other Christians. Uh, but, you know, we everybody talks about love. 
Everybody. It's one of those words that has become generic. It has become watered down. But how do we really know those that love the brethren? Those that have the relationship with God that they need to. You can't be a help to your fellow Christian if you're not in communion and abiding with God. That's the only way. We see that brotherly love is an extensive thing.